Hi, everyone. This is Sophia Ruan Goucher. Welcome back to Practical Non-Toxic Living, the podcast. I'm here with Elizabeth McCormick, and we just spoke to Theodora Scarado, Executive Director of the Environmental Health Trust. And we had a great conversation about their experience in suing the FCC for ignoring the large body of science that have shown health risks from the wireless radiation from our everyday devices. I was like, I could have listened to her talk forever. I was so interested. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Did you hear things that were surprising? I guess. Yes. I don't know. It's always so nice to like, maybe you feel this way too. I always feel like it's nice to like, it's one thing for me reading these things on my own to then think about it. And it's another thing to hear someone else talk about it and about their action items. And yeah, I thought it was nice. And I liked hearing all about all the different, um, like the regulatory loopholes and everything too. I just thought that was like interesting in general. Yeah. Yeah. The, the last podcast I recorded with her in April, 2019 is like a great first conversation to listen to. If you're really new to the topic of EMFs and you want to know how might this pose risks to my health or to health of my family. And also the one with Deborah Davis is super helpful because Deborah is an incredible scientist who talks a lot more about the science. And but today's conversation I thought was so interesting because we learned more about the legal experience of the Environmental Health Trust suing the FCC and legally what are the steps to create positive change. So that's super helpful too. Yeah. I really liked hearing about just the difference in like the FDA and the EPA and how, I don't know, I guess you just never really think, like, I feel like so much of non-toxic li living is um, your own like conscious consumerism, which is the most applicable in your daily lives right this second. But what down the line can we do to protect the public in general? It's so interesting hearing about all those regulatory bodies that like really make the requirements. And recognizing that everyone whether you're a physician or a regulatory body you have your 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 specific expertise and it's important to have a more holistic perspective as well and that doesn't go on with the government and public and environmental health so that's so important from the beginning of my path i've been i've had an ulterior motive of wanting to help strengthen laws, but I knew that the first step was getting more people to care because if elected officials think that the public doesn't care, then change is less likely to happen. So it's great to finally be at a place where the media has done such a great job of informing the public and it feels like it's easier now to to get public, the public engaged in helping Theodora and the Environmental Health Trust and so many other great nonprofits that are working to strengthen laws. Yeah, totally. I think it's so interesting. And I, especially in the terms of, you know, these 
cell towers and the laws that allow them to be put, like you can have as much wired ethernet, you know, EMF blocking devices in your own home and they can still go in and depending where you're living 10 feet away from your home, like right on your sidewalk, they could set up a massive 5G cell tower because like that's their right and that's the law because there's no studies to tell them otherwise. Um, So that's where I feel very like galvanized to <laughs> um, to care and like get other people to care a lot more because that's less, that's not my own decision anymore, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. So I hope listeners enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Hi, I'm Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of the critically acclaimed best-selling book, A to Z of Detoxing, The Ultimate Guide to Reducing Our Toxic Exposures, and founder of Ruan Living, the only wellness lifestyle brand that simplifies practical non-toxic living. Welcome to my podcast. I was looking at the last time we spoke for the podcast and it was April, 2019, about four years ago. I know a lot has happened since then. I don't even think at the time we spoke that I knew that the Environmental Health Trust was going to file a lawsuit against the FCC. And I feel like a lot of people don't know about this lawsuit, which is so, it's historic. So could you talk about what compelled the Environmental Health Trust and others to file this lawsuit? And and then we'll take it from there. Great. I cannot believe it's been that long. And this is a story worth telling for sure. So because probably when I was talking to you, I was talking about how the limits that we have, FCC's limits for wireless radiation are outdated. They were set in 1996. There hasn't been an adequate review. There's this study after study showing impacts and yet no change by the federal government. So what happened was in 2019, in December, the FCC that has authority related to ensuring regulations are followed, they decided that we don't need to change our, these limits, these 1996 limits. We've looked at the record, and there actually was a, a, a an open record where uh, scientists, the public, policymakers could put in uh, their recommendations for these limits. And that record had been open since 2013. I'm sorry about that phone. So the FCC decided in 2019 that they didn't need to change these limits that they set in 1996. And we filed a lawsuit basically saying you're ignoring the science. You're ignoring what experts have told you, that the limits are not protective. You're ignoring children's vulnerability because children absorb this radiation deeper. Their brains are more sensitive. And there was study after study that shows impacts to brain development, to memory, uh, and also that you're ignoring effects on the environment effects to bees, effects to animals, flora and fauna. There's a study we put on the record that showed impacts to trees and plants. So this was the only um, 
time that there had been a moment when we could sue. Because a lot of people said, well, why haven't you, well, hasn't there been a lawsuit against the federal government before? Well, this was that moment. You have a certain amount of time when a federal agency makes a decision that you can file. And in 2021, in August, we got the results of the ruling, the DC, um, I'm sorry, the US Appeals Court, DC Circuit, uh, determined that the FCC's decision to keep those outdated limits was arbitrary and capricious because they had ignored the issues related to non-cancer harms, brain development, children, people who uh, had written their personal stories of injuries and impacts to the environment. And the court ordered, they ordered the FCC to show how the FCC limits were protective related to the following issues. Children's vulnerability, long-term exposure, because there wasn't documentation related to long-term exposure that the FCC could pr provided substantiating their position. Uh, 5G and well, they didn't say the word 5G in this particular in the in the order, but they said all the new technological developments that have happened since 1996 and also the impacts of the environment to the environment. So the FCC has not responded. Is there a deadline for the FCC to respond by? Very good question. No. They could have, the wireless companies could have appealed to the Supreme Court. They did not. So that's not happening. And it's not typical for uh, judgments like this to actually have a timeline. When you have federal agencies, there's a lot of deference given to those federal agencies. So no, there was not a timeline. And it's been... We're coming on two years, not quite, but we're coming up there. And something I say is like, well, if it was, if the FCC had proof that what they did was according, you know, they properly reviewed the record, couldn't they just like put it together and put it out? But they haven't. We don't know how they even would because there has been no federal agency, not the CDC, not the NIH not the EPA, not the FDA, uh, not the Department of Labor, that's looked at all of the science and especially those issues that the FCC was found to ignore and has shown these limits are safe. Uh, and we know that we've looked at all the science and we've made that determination. There's been no robust review of the totality of the science. And so did the court determine that there should be some appointed group that should review the body of science and integrate it into the requirements, the wireless standards? They didn't say that specifically. What they did say is that the silence of federal agencies does not mean that the federal agencies are giving you the green light because the FCC had argued in their filings that, well, the you know, the federal agencies didn't say there was a problem. The EPA didn't say anything. So we can go ahead with this move. So, but they did not say who should do it. We are recommending, and by the way, something that happened was in November last year, we did a filing to the FCC saying, first, there's all this new science since you made that, since the court made its decision. And that needs to be included in your response to the court. 
And we documented uh, numerous studies. We talked about what they meant. Then we said, we believe that, you know, you need to engage federal agencies and also consider the National Academy of Sciences and Engineering to now do a roadmap for the FCC and for the federal government about what it needs to do, because we really have some regulatory gaps here. It's not like there's a whole bunch of experts at the EPA that are sitting around, pouring through the science and going, is it safe? Is it not safe? What does this study say? How does that compare to FCC limits? That's what I believed to be true when I came into this issue a decade ago. I thought, of course, they're all there. They're studying the science. They're making sure that everything's safe. But actually, that's not the case. The EPA has not done any research review since, what was it, 19, uh, I have to look at the date, 84, 85, when they last put out a report on biological effects. So it sounds like the outcome of this lawsuit filed by the Environmental Health Trust was a huge win. The court acknowledged some very important things and ordered the FCC to review uh, the large body of science. But it also sounds like in practice, I don't really know when the public's going to benefit from any of this because there are no deadlines. And so this can get dragged out for many more years. Is that correct? Am I missing something? Well, it's a step and there's more to go. So it's a piece. And actually, we decided to put our resources towards this case because compared to a lot of the other legal cases that are in place, like people with brain tumors alleging it's their cell phone use or um, people alleging that this they're not being informed about the cell phone fine print warnings. We actually did this case because of the timeline, because we knew we could get a response sooner than those other cases. And just as an example, there are over a dozen people who are claiming that their heavy use of a cell phone caused brain tumors. The first filing of that was in the early 2000s, and it still hasn't gone to a full trial. They just had an evidentiary hearing in Washington, D.C. Uh, this fall. So you can see that is so many years it takes for these lawsuits. Now, the thing about ours is that it calls into question uh, statements such as, well, the cell tower is compliant with FCC limits, so it's safe. So what our lawsuit does is um, show that that statement doesn't rest on an up-to-date scientific review of all of the science. And it shows that there is a need for there to be a proper review. I mean, look, we think about, not that we're doing the best job on chemicals or on air pollution or on water pollution, but my goodness, compared to this issue, we are light years, light years ahead in other toxins. I mean, there's monitoring of the water. There's monitoring around Superfund sites. There's what's the air pollution in these different cities. People go around and measure, right? But when it comes to this issue, there's no environmental monitoring of what the levels are right now. There's no compliance checks for companies when they put up their towers. How do we know that what they're doing is compliant? 
Well, here's how. We rely on the companies to get their independent consultants to put in the reports. No one's checking that that's done properly. There's no oversight by the federal government. There's no, um, there's also no way that you can have um, like a, a enforcement because we're not even checking to see if there's compliance. There's no health surveillance, post-market surveillance like you do with drugs. You know, if you have side effects for different drugs, you get out that list of side effects when you, at least you're informed of them, right? Well, how do you get that from a reporting system? There's no reporting systems for these installations or for these devices for people who who are ill. None of those regulatory that regulatory framework just doesn't exist for electromagnetic fields. So you just described what that's like in the United States. How does the U, the U.S. approach compare to other countries? I know there's some countries that have taken more precautionary measures. Maybe they're not even precautionary at this point. They're just responsive to the science. Would you talk about how other countries are protecting their children and and public health? Sure. Wonderful you asked that. I'm actually writing a chapter on that right now. So let's start with the levels that we have, the limits for the United States compared to other countries. Some countries have limits that are 10 to 100 times more stringent than the United States for cell tower network emissions. Like if you held a meter up in the air, you're standing near a cell tower, what's allowable? That differs depending on the country. Some countries have done that as a precautionary approach. They take uh, the limit by ICNRP and they just dropped it down a percentage to be more to have be more cautious. Some countries have done it based on acknowledgement of the reality of biological effects. That would be um, Russia and China, actually. They acknowledge biological effects. Um, and now I should say that many scientists say that those limits, even the ones that are 100 times less, are still not adequate enough to be protective. And in fact, as an interesting example, when Los Angeles uh, School Board looked at this, the Los Angeles LAUSD, they said, we're going to make a, a cautionary limit 10,000 times less than the US FCC to protect children. Just to give you some perspective on the, very, the, the various ways that people have approached this. Within even those countries that have precautionary uh, levels of exposure. There are other policies that are in place. So Belgium uh, and France don't allow the sale of cell phones that are uh, designed for young children. There are also recommendations by agencies to really uh, inform the public that you should. They don't say, if you're worried, if you're really worried about it, here's what you can do. They say, you should reduce exposure to your kids. Uh, France has labeling that comes with the phones that says, keep away from the pregnant abdomen and the abdomen of teenagers, for example. In France and Australia, uh, in, in several countries actually, they are monitoring the levels in the community. Let's say you wanna know, like you live in New York City, and let me tell you, if you live in New York City and you wanna know what is your level 
How would you find that out? The city's not providing that information. I don't know if they're gathering it, but if you lived in Australia or France, or in fact, Greece, uh, in Senegal just did this as well, actually over a dozen countries, you could, in some of those countries, just type in your address in a website, and oh, there would be the reports of the monitoring that they're doing. Some are continuous monitoring they're doing 24-7. You could see what was the level two years ago, what was it three years ago? Where's the compliance check on the various installations? But we don't have that in the United States. As well with your cell phone, if you want to know the SAR level of your phone, you could type in the make and model, Apple iPhone 11, which is what I have, and you could find out what's the SAR level for that or what testing has been done. France is actually doing their own testing of phones. They pull them off the market, test them to see do they match what the manufacturer is saying. Would you explain what SAR is and why people should care about it? SAR is specific absorption rate, and it's a measure of the rate of absorption from the device into the body. Now, I have to say, on the one hand, it is a heat-based measurement. It's all about heat, which means it is not addressed biological effects. So we don't consider the SAR to be relevant to health protection. However, it is the only metric we have at this time. And um, phones, before they come on the market, are tested for their SAR level. It, it is So the U.S. and all countries have two kinds of limits. They have a limit for if there's a cell tower, what is it? What are the creations of the levels in the air? And that's a maximum permissible exposure level. And then there's a level for phones and for devices. And that's that's that they have an SAR limit. Uh, and in France, and how, this is how they do it. Have you, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but they take a big head of a 220 pound man based on a 220 pound man. They fill it with a liquid that's supposed to simulate our brains, which of course it does not because brains are different thicknesses. This is just put it in there. They put a thermometer in this big head and then they put the phone near the, the, the body phantom. It's a dummy. I don't mean dummy, you know, I mean a phantom, like a body dummy. And uh, the phone is not placed like, you know, you put the phone in your bra. I don't now, but um, many people do, or you put it in your spandex pants or in your pocket it's not tested in that position. There's actually always a, a space between the phantom and the phone with the big thermometer that's in it. It's kind of outrageous. This was developed decades ago and they still use this process, which has been criticized by so many uh, experts. Uh, and France decided to start testing, doing SAR testing. So every phone has a different SAR level. And they started pulling phones off the shelf and testing them. And they found that the majority of them, when they first released the information in 2.15 and 16, they had a report and then another release, the majority violated the SAR limits that they were supposed to have when they were in body contact positions, the way we use devices. 
So over 30 phones have been taken off the market or software updated. And what ended up happening was even though the, the most of these phones, 80% at the time, violated limits, when they were tested with the way the manufacturer did it, five millimeters or 10 or 15 or so forth, they did not necessarily exceed limits. So they were still considered compliant. And that's the case in the United States where a phone is considered compliant when it's tested, not touching the body. And just to add, I know this is a lot of information, but uh, Om Gandhi, one of the scientists who developed our FCC limits, actually took the French data, converted it to the way the U.S. tests, and that we test in a little bit different way in terms of the volume that we average over time, the uh, the, the averaging, and found that um, phones would those phones would exceed U.S. limits by up to some 11 times in body contact positions. And that was in our, uh, in our case. It was an important piece of our case because I forgot to mention the one thing in our case that's also, I don't know how I could forget this, but the court also ordered the FCC to address this issue of how the device is tested, the test systems for SAR. And if you listen to the oral arguments, you'll hear them talk about that distance, like, but you test it with a distance, like who, who keeps a distance from their phone? How many people put on AirPods, which we haven't talked about, tuck that phone in their pants, they're walking around with the phone against the reproductive organs in their abdomen. And then they also have the, um, the Bluetooth in their ear. And the Bluetooth signal is getting stronger and stronger with the newer models. I know you can't speak for all governments or even our government or another government, but in your opinion, why would France, for example, have such a different reaction to the science? Why are they so proactive in protecting the pup? the public, including monitoring EMF levels in the community. And the U.S. has such a different reaction. One theory I had is that the government pays for more of the health care bill, so they know that this precautionary measure just saves them more money and resources in the long term. But I'm wondering if you have thoughts on why the U.S. is not a leader in protecting environmental and public health in this regard? Well, I imagine there are a lot of answers to that question. In the United States, there was a, lot, a robust research program that was ended in, in the mid-1990s. So one piece in the U.S. is that we don't have a research program ongoing uh, within the Environmental Protection Agency, which was actually going to set safety standards. They were tasked to and developing safety standards that would address heating impacts as well as biological effects. That was halted. Whereas in France, and actually the International Association for Research on Cancer, I mean, not association, I'm sorry, um, IARC, um, International Agency for Research on Cancer, is located there. There was uh, 
my goodness, going back to 210, a whole campaign about reducing exposure to children that happened going way back. And a group of French doctors and scientists that signed on to an appeal to have a precautionary approach. Also, France has the um, ANSYS uh, and agencies, they're kind of like their FDA, that are always looking at various exposures. You know, there's food dyes that are legal in the United States, illegal in Europe. There's all kinds of chemicals that we have the same story. We don't really have an agency in the United States that's always looking at the science to make recommendations. That's what's happened here. Whereas in France, they're, um, the ANSYS, they have put out reports in 216, repeatedly kind of looking at the science and saying, here's what we think, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. We don't have that in the United States. Instead, if you look up the EPA website or the FDA website, which seems like everything's fine, they don't say what are the open questions. And there's so many open questions that need to be answered in order to ensure safety. Like with 5G, which is going to use much higher frequencies, those frequencies have not been used commercially before. We don't have data on people that used 5G with those high frequencies because 5G is going to include the low frequencies and the higher frequencies and the mid-band frequencies too. But for the high frequencies, there isn't data showing safety. There's just a few biological studies that have been done uh, more recently, and the, and the majority of those have shown effect, but those, that's not the kind of long-term data that you want that you do for a drug, for example, before it came on the market. So for the listeners, I just want to point out that in my first podcast with you, Theodora, I forget the number, we'll put it in the show notes, we talked about the thermal effects and non-thermal effects, like historically scientists and probably regulators were focused on thermal effects. But since regulations were set, we've realized there are a lot of non-thermal effects. And also in the podcast with Dr. Davis, Deborah Davis, and Dr. David Carpenter, we talk a lot more about what the science has shown about health risks to EMFs but Theodora, since we spoke in April 2019, and I, I'm sure that in your memory, that's a foggy date, but I'm wondering what more science has revealed in recent years, and if you've changed any of your habits from what you've learned from the body of science now that 5G is being rolled out more and more results of studies have come out. Have you changed anything or you still just uh, do what you had been doing, which you discussed in our last podcast? I, okay, a couple things there. I don't know if I've changed anything because I pretty, we're hardwired in our, in my house. So I have a, and of course with COVID, you know, everything's out of the house uh, for me. I mean, my office is in the house and I have a hardwired phone. So I take my calls on the phone, a real phone with a curly cord, and I have my computer right now, for example, Ethernet connected, which of course is faster. It doesn't drop. I don't have connection problems. Um, 
So one of the things I guess I've been working on is with even more, uh, even more effort to address the issue of cell towers near homes, because what's been happening is since I last talked to you, 5G and uh, the densification of 4G as well has been happening rapidly. And in my community, they are allowing installations 30 feet from home. So I could get a small cell transmitter on the light pole in front of my windows to my house. And actually in the in DC, their limit is 10 feet. And I believe in in uh, New York, you're at what, 10.5 feet or something. So I guess I've been more engaged on this issue in relationship to the infrastructure, like what's outside the home, because I could make all the changes I want in my home and everyone should have a choice about what they, how they want to do in their home. But if I get one outside, there's not much I can do about it. Thank you. I know you've been working with people from all over the U.S., including New York City. I want to go back to something I read in a press release that was on the Environmental Health Trust website, and it's in regards to the court ruling that the FCC failed to respond to, quote, record evidence that exposure to RF radiation at levels below the commission's current limits may cause negative health effects unrelated to cancer. And I was just wondering, why are they segregating effects unrelated to cancer? That is a really good question. So here's what happened. Um, the, the FCC, when, when we went to lawyers when this first happened, when the FCC said, we're going to keep our limits, and we went and talked to different lawyers, they were shocked at how the FCC really, you'd think the FCC would say, well, you talked about damage to trees, but you know what? We just don't agree with you and here's why. And, and you talked about impacts to children's brain development, but we saw these studies that don't show an effect. So we're going to go with them as the reasons we disagree with you. But the FCC just completely ignored those issues. But with the issue of cancer, what they did is say, well, the FDA says that there's no reason there's no concern about our limits the fda had put out a press release uh two statements online saying that the national toxicology program study the 30 million dollar study that the fda asked for related to long-term animal studies they found a clear evidence of of some types of cancer uh and also dna damage at non-thermal levels so the FDA says that this study is uh, has a lot of problems with it and agrees that there's no problem with our limits. The FDA actually submitted a letter to the FCC saying that the NTP study doesn't have uh, doesn't shift their position on this issue. So there are two parts, they're sort of like, you know, how the both ands, like there are many things that exist all at once. So this is a situation where, yes, the FDA did say that. The court gives, again, a lot of deference. It, it did not need, the FCC did not need to do much to actually not have been sued. If they had just said, 
you know, I know that you think that you, you're telling us this about the trees and the plants, but you know, we, there's just not enough studies on that. And we got someone to say that with a authoritative report. The FCC completely ignored those issues. On the cancer one, they said, the FDA, we have this letter from the FDA. So that was good enough to have that not be a part of it. However, the what the FDA did um, was not the, in the, in fact, I could look up in, in the uh, filing, the, the judges say, really, we need more than that. Like that wasn't, you can't rely on the FDA for everything. And they pointed that out. Um, it doesn't mean, remember our court case was not about, it was about the science, but not about the science. Okay. It was, it was about doing due diligence. It was about like when you go to a doctor and you, the doctor says, oh, you're fine. And didn't even look at your body. Didn't do any tests to find out what might be wrong. It's kind of like, it was about that. Not about, I believe this science over that science. The court did not make a determination on whether the FDA was right or wrong about what it said, but rather that the FCC had failed to show how it made its decision based on an authority that had health or science expertise. I kind of went around the bush on that, but uh, no, I, I, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it read to me like the lawsuit was saying the FCC is not doing its job and the court agreed. That, well, that the FCC didn't do its job to thoroughly look at the record before it and to show that it looked at the record. It didn't show it didn't show its homework. <laughs> the way I see it is if you had homework in your backpack and you needed to bring it out, like it's been over a year, where's the homework? Did the dog eat it? You know, <laughs> where, where is it? If you, you say you did it, like, can't you just get it, go back to the house and get it? There's no, there, there, mm -hmm. there's no getting it. I'm wondering, you probably have more, not you, but the scientific community, the data probably has a larger percentage of the population reporting sensitivity to EMFs. Has that been shown? Well, we need, the U.S. is not gathering that data right now. There have been two recent publications by Dr. Leonard Hardell and others actually looking at, for example, people that live in apartments and they get a small cell transmitter in front of their apartment or rooftop antennas and have reported symptoms of uh, microwave illness, um, you know, headaches, brain fog, neurological problems, uh, sleep issues that are, you know, electro electromagnetic sensitivity uh, would be a term that's used. Um, so, I can say this, we are contacted on a regular basis by people from all across the United States and the world. And they all have the same story. They all, they didn't know anything about this. They're just, you know, they have all different kinds of jobs and all different lives, all different places. And they say, here's what happened. I started getting these symptoms, didn't know what it was. Then I find out that they put those antennas on or they were right outside the window or on top of the roof. And can you please help us? 
because we went to try to get it fixed and we were told that they're legal, that this is legal, but this is what's happening to me. Um, one husband called us, his wife had gotten ill and they had the antennas right just, you know, right there off the, the bedroom and the bathroom feet away from where they lived. Another man lived in an apartment building and in California, and those antennas were literally mounted. So the bed, here's his head on the bed and the antennas were right on the other side. And he is just as sick as can be just with headaches and digestive issues and all kinds of issues that just suddenly appeared. And he had to move, of course. There's no fixing. It's helpful for people, for listeners to hear these stories because so many people suffer from various, their unique set of symptoms and it wouldn't occur to them that it could be from electromagnetic fields. And so it's just good for them to be aware and that the symptoms can vary from person to person. I wanted to ask you about something on your website, which is a case filed by iPhone users who claim that Apple breached, I'm reading this, <laughs> I'm um, from your website. So the case filed by iPhone users who claim that Apple breached state tort and consumer fraud laws by misrepresenting and failing to disclose the amount of RF radiation emitted by its smartphones. Would you talk more about this lawsuit? This is pretty alarming as a consumer of many Apple products. And after our conversation about the FCC standards being quite lenient. So that's an interesting case. And right now they're trying to, um, they filed a Supreme Court. They're, they're hoping the Supreme Court will look at it. It's more about can the case exist or not, but well, I'm just wondering, are the emissions really high for okay. these Apple products? So let me explain the case and now you can start it. So let me tell you a little bit about that case. So the Chicago Tribune did an investigation where they took phones and tested them in close proximity positions, kind of like I was talking about the French government, but they did like um, two millimeters to simulate if you had it in your pants pocket the distance from the phone to the body. And they found that the phones could exceed that SAR limit that supposedly the phone had that allowed it to be put on the market and be compliant with FCC limits. So phones can violate FCC limits when they're in those close positions, but yet the companies are not informing when you buy a phone, are you told that actually you are? You just don't know it. It's deep in the fine print of the manual or now you can actually go online. You can type RF exposure, Apple, and you can see that statement, but the, the statement has even changed. I mean, the statement used to be a little bit clearer about the device not being in body contact. And now it talks about how it's tested with the five millimeter or 10 or so forth, whatever it is for the device. The newer Apple products are at five millimeters. They're tested at five millimeters. And you might think five millimeters, that is so little, like who cares? Like, well, what could that, 
what difference could that make? Makes a big difference when it comes to electromagnetic radiation because it actually can be quite substantial. Every millimeter counts. And the Chicago Tribune did testing that shows those violations of, of levels when the device is closer. And there's also all of these Apple ads and commercials that show like children holding phones. There's one where they have a kid running and the kid's holding the phone and then the mom or the adult takes it and puts it in her pocket. There's phones in pockets. Whereas we're not told that the phone should not be in body contact. So that is about people not being, hey, we weren't informed uh, on that issue. And now there's an issue about, is it state, you know, is it, do we have to have follow the state laws or is it preempted by the federal laws and so forth? So they're getting into that discussion there, but it's a very important case. You know, San Francisco and Berkeley both passed well, ordinances that would have informed you at point of sale about these fine print distances. And yet the wireless industry sued, immediately sued, halted implementation of both of those ordinances. People in those cities don't even know that that was passed. Uh, San Francisco was 210 and 211, Berkeley 215. And yet the wireless ind industry argued that it violated their free speech rights, that the companies had a right to be in charge of what they were going to say, and they didn't want to say that. And how did the court rule? So the case actually, the Berkeley case, actually was successful, court case after court case. And then the FCC put in a filing saying this is all preempted by the FCC. So then it became a preemption issue. And so that is what then the industry took it back to the court and the court determined it's preempted. This whole issue is preempted. The FCC argues that they're already doing enough to inform people about this issue, that it's already enough there. There's, and I mean, you try figuring out what the SAR or what the fine print warning is on your phone. And I wish you all the luck. <laughs> Who's ever listening? Like, you're like, you're learning about this. How do you find that out? You know, go online, try to figure that out for yourself. So in terms of um, kind of back to these, like this idea of ESG, like the environmental um, society governance um, kind of initiatives that are beginning to um, get more traction in like corporate America. When we say like the wireless industry, are there any specific companies that within um, that umbrella that are kind of taking more initiative than others in terms of their wireless implementation or um, their marketing or their warnings for lack of a better word? At this point, how this is working is all the companies are part of a organization called the CTIA, which is the Wireless Industry Lobby Group. Okay. That, that is the group that fights the cell phone right to know acts that have gone on, that puts out content saying FCC limits are, you know, our, our facilities are meeting FCC limits. 
there are no companies that are that I know of that are trying to make a safer phone or to address some of these issues with research and design in any public way. And I often wonder, is there like a pinky? Like, did everyone just go around and say, we're going to, because you have to remember when one goes down, they all go down. I mean, if, if they, if one admits there's a problem, then that's a, that's a financial major financial issue. And remember I told you about the brain tumor cases Mm -hmm. that has a lot of the companies that you're, that you know of are involved in that. So they're, they're all involved in these, in these cases. They're all trying to put their installations up. So I don't know if there's one that's doing anything more. We'd like for there to be more research and design to, to look into, it's kind of a two-parter. One is more wired fiber optic fast infrastructure is needed so that you don't need as much high, those invisible highways in the air, which, which is what they're doing with the cell tower networks. They say, oh, you, we, there's, a, there's a gap here. We need, people need more data. They need more this, they need more that. But what's happened is people don't have that strong connection of, uh, that, that's wired to and through into your home, into your business. Because if you did most of your work in a wired, with wired infrastructure or in your home, you wouldn't need so much uh, bandwidth because it's going through the cord rather than in the air. If I've answered that. It does. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. That's so, I love the idea of like, I hope someone's out there creating a safer phone. (laughs) Um, But no, I just want to say like, thank you so much for all of your time and like sharing all of this knowledge. I feel like for me, um, there's the whole time we were talking, I was thinking of, you know, like the documentary, the social dilemma about social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the um, featured speakers, you know, he's kind of like, if the product is free, it's because you're the product. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of what was coming into my mind is like, if the data isn't there, it's because they're still doing it. And it's us, it's our bodies that are the experiment. And so mm-hmm. um, that just was like, kind of the phrase that popped into my mind is like, you know, even if you're not I personally feel like I'm a little sensitive to electromagnetic fields. Like I can feel it. So I take time to, you know, take these preventative measures um, for myself. But I know a lot of other people in my age group are like, oh, I sleep with my cell phone under my pillow every night. And I'm like, (laughs) Um, but I just, I like that idea in, in terms of prevention is like, if we don't know the data, well, we do know a lot of the data. And for, you know, those saying that we don't know the data, it's because our bodies are the ones still figuring it out. So. Yeah, this is a experiment on us. I have three questions I I received that I want to make sure we get to. One person was asking whether our brains and bodies accumulate radiation or do you let it go? That's a good question. So this is not like um, particles that have ionizing are, are creating ionizing radiation. So it, they do, it doesn't build up. However, it's not like it goes in and it's a thing that is going to stay there. And then there's more and more. However, uh, these are fields that are induced in our bodies. Um, cumulatively, the effects 
can have an accumulative effect because you're exposed and you might have like, let's say there's some small cellular changes or impacts uh, in your body that continues, continues, continues. You're going to have a downstream effect, a cascade of biological effects, as it has been described by experts. But can't the body repair if it if it has the break? If it, I guess if it's occasional exposures, it can repair. But if it's chronic, then I see why the effects would build. Well, the body's always repairing. We're always repairing. That's why sleep is so important. It's a time when your body is repairing. Uh, what's happened though, is that people aren't having that space to repair because there is no off. They're not turning their phone off. They're, they're sleeping next to their routers or they have a antenna outside their bedroom and so forth. And a lot of people who are sick with, um, who've developed sensitivities and they need to go into a time where they are outside of exposure as much as possible to heal their body so that they can then go back into it. But they need that time when it's off to really like long time, like could be months. And in answer to your question too, Elizabeth, there are people, there's studies that have looked at headaches. There's a lot of studies on headaches that have associated exposure with headaches. In fact, there was a recent study of uh, from Thailand where they found, they say, we believe that migraines, this can be a cause of migraines and not necessarily at the higher levels, but in fact, at kind of lower levels, then it, it's not always dose makes the poison, just like with um, chemicals, you know, there's that dose makes the poison concept that's being addressed because it's not all, you know, you can have a little impact and that can have that effect to your thyroid and, and so forth. And they're finding dose does not always make the poison with electromagnetic fields as well. Another question from someone uh, comes from listening to the podcast with Deborah Davis, who's founder of Environmental Health Trust. She talked about rectal cancer increasing in that podcast. And the listener was wondering, Deborah said she was working on a paper mm -hmm. on that. Has that paper come out? Yes. Okay. And it documents the, the rises in young people and uh, regards to colorectal cancer and proposes that the way the phone is placed on the body could be a part of that increase. Okay. And last question is a very common question I get. It's about the wireless earphones. And I know we addressed it before, but it's worth readdressing because they're so popular. So what are your thoughts on wireless earphones? We, we would say that we don't recommend using wireless earphones because when you put them in, what people are doing is putting them in and leaving them in for hours. And there is an exposure, be it less than the phone to your ear, right? Because you put a phone to your head, air, any kind of wireless earphones are going to be less than that, but it still is a level that is going, that is in close proximity to your brain. And have there been studies that have looked at people using wireless earphones for so many years to see if there's been an effect? No. So that, that data doesn't exist on humans. There is data 
showing radio frequency radiation, which is emitted by those at levels, which are much lower than, than the limits that we say are safe, can have an effect. And uh, so scientists are saying, we don't recommend that because of all of those questions. The other thing that happens is people will put them in, they'll take the, so the phone now is emitting both the going back and forth with the tower and now also having the the Bluetooth and those frequencies. And some, there's different Bluetooth classes actually. And some of them really have a wide range. I mean, they're going pretty far. This is not, uh, you know, I don't like to use, I guess sometimes I do use the word low, but we have to quantify it as to what it is. And it's not so low. It does not mean safe. So and it's constantly emitting radiation even when you're not using it, correct? Yes. If you keep them in your ears and you're not using it to speak or listen, it's still emitting radiation. Is that correct? Correct. And what some of them have, one is connecting to the other. It's not connecting down to the phone. Let's say you have the phone in your pocket. One connects to the other, the other connects to the phone. So you're actually, it's going, your head is here. The two things are here. It's somehow getting over there. It is, that is an exposure into your brain. We do have on our website, and I can give you the links, some studies where we've looked at that exposure, specifically modeled it um, using uh, computers, engineers using computers to look at the exposure. And you'll see there is an exposure in your ear. Well, thank you again for taking the time today to inform us and for all that you do. Everyone listening should sign up for the newsletter for the Environmental Health Trust to follow and support what the Environmental Health Trust is doing. For listeners who are concerned about the cell towers in their neighborhood, do you have one to two steps that listeners can take to get involved to help protect their communities? It seems sure. very complicated. <laughs> you know, it is and it isn't um, because the first thing, it really depends on your community, but you want to find out who the decision makers are regarding cell towers or small cells in your area. And does your community have an ordinance, a protective ordinance? Because there's many communities that have ordinances that say there should be a 500 foot setback. That's the preferred location for this infrastructure. Um, and if your community does not have that, or maybe in your ordinance or in some ordinances, they have like, we want pre-tests and post-tests. Um, if you don't have these protections, then that's something to work towards getting. So one is finding out what's the situation in your neighborhood. Second thing is talking to your friends and family and community, getting them educated on this, because most people just have no idea. I certainly didn't. I also will tell you, I really didn't even know who my elected officials were at the local level. Someone said, well, who's your council person? Who's your state representative? And I was like, gosh, I, I don't even know, you know? And part of my process way back, uh, now over a decade ago, was like, okay, who are these people that are representing me? They are the decision makers and they actually work for us. They're supposed to represent the people and they're not going to represent us well if we don't tell them what we think or want or um, what our, 
our issues are. So it's our responsibility to letting letting them know what we think and also, you know, talking to friends and family to start to ask those questions. I hope that people stay curious. You know, be curious, be inquisitive. Like, oh, they say it's safe. How? Where? What does the science say? And uh, it's an important piece. And another thing I'll add is, in addition to ehtrust.org, please sign up for our newsletter, as you said. We also have a new website called Healthy Tech Home, which I'll give you links to that you can link to in the notes. That is about how to make changes in your home to have safer technology, just about in your home. And we also have... uh, you know, the the recommendations by medical organizations and some huge news out of Maryland, first in the nation, is that they have come out with uh, how to reduce electromagnetic fields in your home. And this is by the State Council on Children and Environmental Health Protection. It includes pediatricians, um, epidemiologists, uh, representatives from our state legislature, as well as the Department of Health, the Department of Education, uh, and and Department of the Environment. And they have different things that you can do to reduce exposure because if you just do one of those things, it makes a huge difference in your exposure. If you even just do, like I started out with, turning things off at night, easy. I wasn't using it. There you go. That makes a huge difference. That's eight hours right there that you're decreasing that those layers of whatever you turn off. So there's just so much that people can do. And that's the Maryland um, Council on Environmental Health Protection, their EMF guidelines, that's linked to, so you can go to Healthy Tech Home. Awesome. Wonderful. We'll provide all those links in our show notes. And please follow, uh, visit ehtrust.org to sign up for the newsletter. Thank you again, Theodora. Thanks for listening. For podcast show notes, visit www.ruanliving.com, spelled www.ruanisanontoxicliving.com. To more easily listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast. And if you'd like to support it, please like it and share it. Until next time.